Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Angel Eduardo, and I'll be flying solo today as my co-host, Melissa Chan, is away. Quick announcement before we get to our guest for this week. We're excited to share that members of Fair Community can now submit questions for upcoming Q&A episodes of Fair Perspectives. We want to give you the opportunity to ask Melissa and me questions about Fair, the pro-human movement, the podcast, and more. To sign up for Fair Community and submit your questions, visit us at fairperspectives.org. And now on to our guest. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Steven Pinker. Steven probably needs no introduction, but he's a cognitive psychologist, psycholinguist, popular science author, and public intellectual. He's won numerous prizes for his research, his teaching, and his books, including The Language Instinct, How the Mind Works, The Blank Slate, The Better Angels of Our Nature, The Sense of Style, Enlightenment Now, and most recently, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, and Why It Matters. In this episode, I chat with Stephen about his books, the public's responses to them, and whether those books have had a positive effect. We talk about the euphemism treadmill and whether we can ever escape it, the misunderstandings of terms like optimism and idealism, the tensions between human nature and the potential for progress, social media and the ways we can improve it, and how we can all be more rational. Ladies and gentlemen, Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Thanks for having me. It is, it is a true honor, sir. I have been a big fan of yours for a very long time. I have read not all of your books, but quite a lot. Uh, and they tend to be hefty. So <laughs> I feel like I feel like a couple of Steven Pinker books is, is good for a lifetime, perhaps. And and you know, you you've profoundly influenced the way that I view the world, actually. Um, you know, particularly Enlightenment Now and uh, the Better Angels of Our Nature really gave me a kind of um I guess I guess a more empirical sort of foundation for what my actual kind of instincts were as just a, you know, an optimistic sort of person that the world is not as bleak as it seems. And that maybe, um, maybe it's about the feed that we're getting and that really, you know, if, if you zoom out enough, things are actually much better than they might appear. Um, but I'm curious, you know, now that you've, you've, you've written so many of these books speaking on, on these, these topics, if you've noticed that the books themselves have had an effect, if you've noticed that maybe you were able to to push back against that tide of of uh, negativity bias and thinking everybody everything is always going to hell in a handbasket. Yes, well, it's uh, a, a a danger that I f- faced and continue to face is that people think the message is everything is just going to get better. Be an optimist, see the glasses half full, put on rose colored right. glasses, which isn't the message. There's no guarantee that things will always get better. Some things do get worse. We have uh, a war in Ukraine. We've got an increase yeah. in the American crime rate. We had COVID. <clears throat> and it would be magical thinking to think that things just do get better. Quite the contrary, the forces of, the, uh, of nature have no particular interest in our well-being. And uh, mm-hmm. generally left to their own devices, things get worse. Things, things rot, things, de- <laughs> things decay. That's, right. Those are the, the laws of the universe. Uh, the positive message is just that we can push back with knowledge, with energy. We can carve out benevolent zones of, of order in uh, areas that affect us. We can, we can reduce disease. We can reduce hunger. We can reduce violence if we 
try to figure out how the world works, and if we try to figure out ways uh, to, to make things better for, for human beings and other sentient creatures. And the reason, and that this might even seem obvious, but it isn't obvious, partly because, uh, as you alluded to in your question, if your view of the world comes from the news, from journalism, it's going to be distorted. Not because there's some nefarious conspiracy among the, the mainstream media, but just the very nature of news, which is it's a non-random sample of things that happen in, uh, in an instant are usually bad things, like an invasion, like a uh, pandemic, a financial collapse, a rampage shooting. Improvements tend to be either things that don't happen, like a part of the world that is uh, not at war, like Southeast Asia, which for decades was one of the world's most brutal places and hasn't had a uh, real shooting war in, in many decades, but that's not a headline. Or things that creep up gradually, a few percentage points a year, so that they can compound, such as the decline in extreme poverty, which uh, over the last couple of centuries went from 90% of humanity to 9%. But it didn't happen on a Tuesday in October. So there was never a headline for that either. So the ways in which things aren't going to hell in a handbasket are hidden from us, which means that people can despair about the prospect of improving our lot. They can also be tempted toward radical and often nihilistic responses, such as, well, the whole system is uh, so corrupt, so decadent, failing left and, left and right, let's just tear it down and, uh, and start all over again, which history tells us can be a very dangerous way to change things. Or people can just say, well, what can, a, what can we do? We're, we're, the poor will always be with you. Humans are naturally violent. There'll always be war. It's naive to think otherwise. Uh, let's just enjoy ourselves as, uh, and our families, and uh, uh, we're going to be cooked because of climate change anyway, so let's have a good time now and not, not try to do anything about it. So those are, I think, two of the dangerous messages that come from, um, I think, not having a view of the human condition as one in which the forces of the universe, including evolution and human nature, are kind of stacked against us, but we have the tools to fight back. And in the the data on progress that I reproduce aren't saying that we're on an escalator that's just going to make things better and better, because uh, we're not. What it says is that the hope of applying reason and science and humanism to improve our lot is not romantic, it's not naive, it's not a pipe dream. It's worked in the past. And so let's figure right. out what we did right and do more of it. Yeah. And, and I think the, well, the beautiful thing about it for me is that you know, despite all our human flaws and failings and, you know, challenges of just kind of battling our own, even our own instincts towards things like tribalism, we seem to have stumbled our way forward and, and done a fairly good job, all things considered, in spite of ourselves, right? So imagine if we, if we paused for a moment to become more kind of cognizant of that fact and then harnessed it and maybe imagine how much better we can do. You know, do you do you feel that as well, or? Yeah, and um, it's ironic for for in a sense for me to be assigned the role of as a as an optimist, or and sometimes even as a uh, a romantic thing, uh, someone who believes in, in uh, eventual perfectibility. So I wrote a book yeah. called The Blank Slate, which argued that there is such a thing as human nature, and it's got a lot of rather. Uh, nasty, ugly uh, motives in it, instincts, right. yeah. uh, like, yeah. like tribalism, like uh, a suite of cognitive fallacies and biases, like nepotism, a, a desire to favor your own genetic relatives over strangers, 
like uh, vengeance, the, the, the feeling that if someone has committed a sin, it is morally correct to make them suffer. Mm. And because we're, that, that's part of human nature, I think there are intelligible uh, evolutionary rationales for them. Uh, we're never going to have a utopia, and, and I argued as such in a blank slate. So it makes me an unlikely champion of uh, progress. Right. But the reason <laughs> that I can t- say that in uh, with a straight face is, first of all, because that's what the data suggests. We really you know, lifespans really have doubled worldwide, more than doubled in, in, in the more fortunate co- countries, mm-hmm. and rates of uh, of, of uh, homicide and war have uh, come down. But also because human nature is a complex system; it's not just one thing. We've got it's got some nasty motives, but it also has capacities for empathy, capacities for self-control, capacities for cognitive processes that can solve problems, capacity for language so we can share our solutions and pool our our collective wisdom. And uh, I uh, co-opted Abraham Lincoln's famous phrase, the better angels of our nature, to capture the idea that there are lots of angels to our nature. There's a Human nature has multiple components, and it's a question of coming up with the the norms and the institutions that bring out our better angels. And despite the flaws in our nature, which are always going to be with us, and there's always going to be some violence, there's always going to be uh, prejudice, there's always going to be lust, there's always going to be uh, vengeance, but we can cap them, we can control them. And uh, again, history tells us that we can, because we have eliminated a lot of barbaric practices that just seem to be permanent parts of the uh, human condition, slavery and human sacrifice, dueling among men of honor, uh, harems and eunuchs, Chinese foot binding, uh, going out for, uh, to, to, to laugh at, at the insane in an insane asylum as a form of family entertainment, public hangings, capital, <laughs> yeah. capital punishment for shoplifting. There's a long list mm-hmm. of things that, uh, that used to be unexceptionable that we have gotten rid of. And they're, you know, even though bad things can always happen, it's unlikely that we're going to go back to, to uh, human sacrifice, to cutting the heart out of a person as a uh, way of placating angry gods. I certainly hope so. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think maybe, maybe um, uh, we can maybe talk about this, but I think maybe sometimes um, we uh, resort to kind of symbolic versions of those things, right? Well, we do. And if there's some, I I think we absolutely do. And that's okay. I mean, that's an improvement. That is, it's better to have, (laughs) as as bad as it is to have, uh, uh, you know, flame wars on on Twitter, it's better than, you know, gang wars with uh, guns and knives. That's definitely true. I would far prefer that. You can always put your phone down. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Right. Right. But actually, yeah, you know, you said a lot there. And I really wanted to ask you, actually, because um, I don't recall if I've heard you quite describe yourself. People ascribe to you this role of optimist, right? But I, I've also heard heard it, you know, that optimism and pessimism are, are biases, right? One can be biased in one way or the other. And that doesn't really seem to me to be a good description of you because you're looking at the numbers, you're looking at data, and you're looking at just the trends and the way they seem to work and just saying, well, the only reasonable conclusion here is that things are getting better. Or things have gotten better, and that things have gotten better. But they, right. no, I'm, I'm and I'm glad you said that because that's, that's exactly yeah. right. I mean, there's optimism just in the sense that there exists the possibility to solve problems. Right. Uh, evidence being the fact that we have solved them in the past. Mm-hmm. You call, I mean, it, it, I suppose you call that uh, optimism. It, there's a term that um, 
I don't know if Matt Ridley introduced it, but he used it as the title of a, his book, The Rational Optimist, which is mm-hmm. not that, as you say, to, to, to assume that things will always get better is a bias and there's no reason to, uh, to adopt it. The, uh, however, just looking at historical data makes one a little more sanguine about the human condition simply because it's invisible to people who get their information about the world from the news. The news is a highly non-random biased sample, whereas the data which count up, uh, well, how many people are in poverty? How many people have died of infectious disease? How many people have been killed in wars? You plot that over time, and that's what allows the realization to sink in that we have made progress. But none of the curves are, are linear for, for good things or decline for bad things. They're always wiggles and ups and downs and sometimes sickening lurches. Right. So, uh, and there's nothing, uh, you know, and, and progress can be undone. Again, I don't think it's just like, you know, the hemlines go up, the hemlines go down. Yeah, there's, there, it's, uh, uh, everything changes weight long enough and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll swing back. Everything is cyclical. That's not mm-hmm. true either. History is not cyclical, but it is. It has a, a huge, unpredictable, random component. I think superimposed, at least in many cases, on overall improvement. War being an example, the um, though there has been, uh, first of all, the decline of war really only meaningfully started after World War II. Before that, I would not be prepared to argue that there was an overall uh, trend in, in reducing war. And World War II is the biggest war in history, of course. Since World War II, the, the trend has been overall down, but with uh, kind of a, a roller coaster because there were bumps for the Vietnam War, the Iran-Iraq War, the Syrian Civil War. There will probably be a bump. We don't know how big for the, uh, the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, and again, there's no guarantee that it won't you know, shoot all the way back up. I suspect it won't, but it, it could happen. And it's all the more reason that we figure out why there was an overall downward trend so that we implement just those measures that caused it and not get complacent. I think there is a danger often that people living in improved circumstances can forget how bad it was and um, forget about all of the institutions that uh, actually bestowed on us this gift of, of, uh, of peace and prosperity. And uh, if we do forget them, then we, we can go back because there's uh, nothing inevitable about it. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, and there's, there's also just this kind of, um, I guess it's some version of narcissism of small difference where, you know, we, we, we leap to the next plateau of, of comfort and safety. And then suddenly whatever problems we're facing there get outsized in comparison to what we've overcome or what we were, were lucky enough to be born having, you know, having our, our predecessors already surpassed. Right. Exactly. Right. Yes. Uh, you, you can, I mean, our, our lens can be focused on today and the fluctuations of the last few uh, weeks or, or even years and mm. forget about the picture over, over decades and sometimes centuries. Right. And, and it, it actually leads me to another thing that I thought of, which is the other dichotomy is between idealism and, and cynicism, which I get all the time as someone, I consider myself an idealist, but I think people have the idea that idealism is similar to that description of optimism that you gave. We're like, oh, everything's going to be fine, right? Or I think everything is already fine, right? But to me, idealism is is kind of an ambition. It's a it's a goal. It's saying, you know, I know what I believe is the right thing or the thing we should be aiming for, and I'm and I'm actively pursuing it. 
people, but people have this cynical side where they say, oh, you know, the fundamental aspects of human nature can't change. And so it seems silly to be so optimistic or idealistic. What do you think? I think that, I think that's right. And idealism should not be at least rational idealism shouldn't be, uh, things will get, will, will naturally get better or that everything, every effort at, uh, improvement will succeed. But just that there's a, a space of possibilities, a space of solutions. There are, there's a mindset in which if we try to pinpoint the source of our problems and mitigate them, then we can uh, sometimes succeed. And the, yeah. you know, we're not smart enough that we'll come up with a solution on the first try uh, or that any a solution that seems good on paper will actually work. That's why we have to be empirical about it. That's why we have to be you know, scientific, scientific, not in the sense of imposing some theory from the top down, but in the sense of being humble about your understanding of reality and being prepared for reality to show that you're wrong. <laughs> That's what, <Right. laughs> what real science consists of. And yeah. uh, which is all the more reason why the, the values of freedom of thought, freedom of speech, open debate, open uh, criticism are so essential. And it's precisely because we're not smart enough to. Uh, figure out how to solve problems on the first try. Uh, each one of us thinks we are. That's a bias in human cognition. We're overconfident about our, our wisdom and our own morality for that, that matter. There's, it's very easy to think, I'm good, the people who disagree with me are bad. I'm wise, the people who disagree with me are, are uh, stupid. So obviously they should be shut up and, and people should listen to me. Now, of course, everyone thinks that and uh, you step back and you realize, well, we can't, we can't all be right. Uh, and the solution is have an arena with rules in which people can say things and other people can criticize them. We uh, criticize them in the sense of whose arguments are most coherent, whose arguments are, seem to be most in touch with reality. To be prepared to change your mind, that's hard to do individually, but certainly as a, as a group, we can say, well, let's... Um, Listen, listen to the different proposals and see which ones work. And it's by that means that we, that, that science progresses through peer review, open debate, empirical testing. Yeah. And one could argue that's the way democracies improve. That is, we, we try Certainly. things out. We try not to repeat our mistakes. We try to keep things that work. We don't know a priori. We've got to try them and, um, yeah. uh, and listen to what might be wrong with them. And, um, uh, and, and, and bit by bit try to do the things that work. Right. There are so many fascinating dichotomies in, in human nature that you just pointed out there. And it's funny that it struck me as you were talking earlier about, you know, you wrote the blank slate and yeah. people, people, people got really upset with you about, about that book and about the idea that, no, we're not blank slates. We do kind of come in pre-programmed and we have to be mindful of that and do something about that. They got mad at you for, for this, you know, the, at least the perceived nihilism of that. Right. But then on the other hand, on the other end, we have you writing Enlightenment Now and the Better Angels of Our Nature and talking about how, you know, despite this not being a blank slate, we have we have done so much and we've improved so much. And then people get mad at you about that. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> so it's, yes. it's, it's a funny tension there. Maybe the generalizers people just get mad at me. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, no, that, that's right. And it, and it is, you know, what I've tried to do, I, you know, I can't claim to be the only person who's done this, is to try to uh, resolve that apparent tension, that apparent paradox, namely human nature exists, 
that has sometimes been associated with conservative, reactionary uh, ideologies because, well, you can't change human nature and uh, war is uh, in our genes. And so it's naive to hope that, we'll, that we'll, uh, we can ever eliminate it. Uh, but the, as a, you know, I come to this as a cognitive psychologist and a psycholinguist. What, what, what gives me uh, the, the claim to have anything to say about you know, war and human history and human progress? Well, the reason is that the understanding of both history and potentialities for the future do hinge on a uh, understanding of human nature. In fact, political ideologies have sometimes been defined by their commitments to uh, the existence and, and nature of human nature. Uh, and uh, the view of human nature as a complex system that has both uh, inner demons and better angels is a way to, uh, I think, reconcile the fact that uh, there's been an awful lot of nastiness in human history. There still is. There have also been improvements. If you look at the data, how can we reconcile them? And the answer is through the complexity of human nature and the implementation of norms and laws and bodies of knowledge and institutions and mechanisms of interaction enabled by our by language enabled by our ability to think up new new institutions new norms uh, and with that tension or interplay or dialectic among the different parts of human nature that's how we, we can make sense of progress i'll add one other key idea and again this comes from my background as a cognitive psychologist which is that uh, one of the components of human nature is the ability to recombine old ideas, to come up with new ideas in the same way that you can combine atoms to form molecules or letters of the alphabet to form words or words to form sentences, uh, that there, with some building blocks and rules of combination, there can be an infinite number of combinations, the open-ended nature of thought. Uh, and the open-ended combinatorial power of language, the fact that we have rules of syntax that allow us to embed a sentence within a sentence, not only do I think that he's a good guy, but she knows that I think that he's a good guy, and he understands that she knows that I think that, we can embed ideas within ideas and come up with an infinite number of new ideas and share them, mm. thanks to the combinatorial power of language, of cognition and of language to express our thoughts. So that's another part of the puzzle that is explaining how hum a human nature exists. The improvement is possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, you you reminded me actually of uh, I recall Bill Maher saying this a few times on his show. You know, the world would be such a better place if everyone just listened to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's it's it's a it's a it's a great summary of one component of human nature, and then the next step is. I mean, you know, once we, the, the point of the joke, of course, is that, you know, Bill Maher knows that he is not the genius who solves all the world's problems. That's why it's funny. <laughs> uh, if he meant it seriously, he'd be, you know, he'd, he'd be a, 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 you know, a lunatic. The fact that he meant it as a joke <laughs> makes right. the point that everyone thinks that. And mm -hmm. uh, that, by the way, this is a nice example of the recursive combinatorial power of cognition. That is, he said it. But we also understand it as not something that he means, but something that he mm. propose, uh, offers as a pose to get us to make the further leap that, well, of course he believes that, and everyone believes that, and they can't all be right. right. Therefore, knowing that thought about our thoughts, what do we do now? Well, that's why we have 
institutions like parliaments where you have debate, like a court system where you have adversarial process, academia where you have, at least in theory, uh, freedom of of, uh, inquiry, freedom of of, uh, speech. Because like Bill Barr, everyone thinks the world would be better if people listen to me, but I can't all be right. (laughs) What do we do about it? Well, what we do about it is we give people the ability to say what they think, but we also give them the ability to collectively try to evaluate all of these claims. Yeah. And that, that brings me kind of to the larger discourse, um, which, you know, I'm sure you're aware of as well. You know, you're on Twitter as well. You've seen the mayhem that, that goes on there. And I'm of the opinion, actually, that, you know, we have more control over how Twitter is than we might think. You know, I just wrote, I just wrote a piece for, for Newsweek, an opinion piece basically saying this, you know, Twitter can be awful, but it can also be glorious. And I personally approach Twitter in a particular way, and it has reaped many benefits for me. I've, I've met wonderful people. I've had incredible um, interactions and disagreements with people in good faith, right? So it's, it's completely possible, this idea that Twitter is sort of designed to be a cesspool is not quite true. But I think the fact is that so much of the responsibility is on us, right? And, and that leads me to that, to that idea of the, the larger discourse, right? All the things that you're saying, I'm totally with you. But it seems easy for people to forget or it seems easy for people's, you know, inner demons to get hijacked and to be teased out. It seems so much more difficult for the better angels to be pulled out. And it seems so much more difficult for people to, to summon those better angels themselves, right? So how, how, what can we do? What do you think are some good things everyday people can do? Yeah, it's a, and you raise some profound issues about how exchange of ideas can be constructive or not because uh, right. uh, and this is something that we have learned and that i think um perhaps i have uh, been surprised at that opening up channels of communication is not by itself enough to uh push a community toward the uh toward understanding toward truth toward toward progress uh the um it, it depends on the, the rules of the game the norms that govern the interactions simply opening the floodgates by itself won't do it. Probably because of all of the biases that we have, we all think that we're, we're, we're right. We all think that people who disagree with us are, are stupid and evil. What do you do about that in, um, to, uh, when everyone thinks that in order to move the community toward better truth? There has to be commitments to certain epistemic values like attack the idea, not the person, be responsive to empirical reality and and have other people be there to hold your feet to the fire. These are the kind of rules that that, um, allowed newspapers early in the 20th century to transition from pretty much sources of fake news. And uh, when when the Rotary Press made newspapers cheap and available, they were full of of nonsense, uh, Mm. of of, claims of of sea monsters and civilizations on (laughs) Mars and conspiracy theories, you know, what we call the era of yellow journalism. And then newspapers kind of got their act together. They formed society uh, that that established standards of fact-checking and sourcing and printing of corrections and a reputation for accuracy. Likewise, the, the advent of science came with scientific institutions like the Royal Society and scientific journals that they used peer review and, and, and uh, open criticism and democracy. In all of these cases, people had to sort of think about what are the rules of engagement that will make it not just a free-for-all where everyone spouts off their own nonsense, 
but a way in which the whole community can move toward a better understanding. It's a point that Jonathan Rauch makes effectively in his book, The Constitution of Knowledge. He's another person you may want to have on this uh, series. And the difference between, you know, at one extreme, you've got you know, Twitter, Twitter at its worst, which is, as you, as you call it, just a cesspool of catcalls and insults and sometimes you know, slander. Uh, and say something like Wikipedia, which is not by no means perfect, but it's still considering that it's so uh, uh, distributed and diffuse, it's actually quite remarkable how accurate it is. And the reason is that people can't just make any old edits and hope for them to, to stay. There are overarching principles like a commitment to sourcing, objectivity, viewpoint neutrality. They don't always work. There are wars in the, in the Wikipedia uh, uh, you know, back, back, back rooms. But on the whole, <laughs> the system has, has um, you know, been more successful than anyone would, would predict. So yeah. in, in Twitter, the question, the uh, as yet unsolved problem is, uh, how, how can, are there mechanisms that would steer it toward uh, more responsibility uh, and, and less um, you know, uh, insults, trolling? character assassination. I wonder, I wonder though, if, if we can count on the algorithms or the systems or the structures themselves to help us with that. I mean, I think we should be concerned about it and I think we should do what we can, but it seems to me that so much of the impetus is going to be on, on us individually to just behave better. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, uh, as I, I, I wrote in, in that piece that I mentioned, it's only half true that the algorithms are, are designed to stoke polarization and to, to make us angry and agitated with one another and present to us things that are going to piss us off. Really, what it's trying to do is get and keep our attention. And it just mm-hmm. so happens that those things are great ways to do that. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's kind of the point that I'm making. Do you, do you see that or do you think that maybe there's a more kind of overarching way that we should approach this? Yeah, it's, um, I think it's an unsolved problem. I guess it's an important point. And it's, I think, all too easy, as it is with almost any issue, to find a villain and blame the villain. And uh, right. if only we could eliminate evil, our problems would be solved. And in this case, I think it's, people are too quick to uh, blame it on the algorithms of, the, of uh, big, big, uh, big tech, uh, although they, they surely deserve some of the blame. But I just remember sure. going yeah. back, you know, being a, kind of an early adopter of, um, uh, of of uh, internet technology, I was a professor at MIT for 21 years, and so, uh, and I was a member of communities like neural network modeling and cognitive science that were early users of online bulletin boards and discussion groups. And back in the 80s, before anyone was on on the internet, before there was an internet, there were things like the ARPANET and the BitNet. I, I was a member of online scientific discussion groups, and we kind of collectively realized that it was all too easy to, for discussions to degenerate into what we, at the time were called flame wars. And the, the noun aflame, the verb to flame, apparently it came from a, uh, uh, at least according to one etymology, from, from an award called the Flaming Asshole Award for people who were uh, <laughs> just too nasty in these discussion groups, and uh, of which the... the uh, uh, the, the, the prize was called the asbestos cork. <laughs> but it was a realization then when, when these things were young, I think it was a small enough community that um, everyone came to realize it was all too easy for disagreements to degenerate into recrimination and insult. And there was a kind of tone policing, constructive tone policing that, that someone would be 
called out and ostracized if they were kind of polluting the discourse by resorting to ad hominem nastiness. Now, it was a small enough community with enough of a kind of reputation management. You didn't want to be the asshole uh, among people who you, you know, might be reviewing your grad proposal or you bump into in conferences. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think they became, you know, there were definitely heated uh, debates on these forums. But just the potentiality for them to degenerate into nastiness was, was, was recognized. And that, there were no algorithms to make anything viral. This was just a fixed number of people who signed up and, and got it in their email box every, every day. So there is something in human nature that makes it all too easy, especially when we have the anonymity of, or the pseudo-anonymity of, of no face-to-face contact, where there are ordinary human reactions where it's, it's harder to call someone an idiot to their face than to type it in on your keyboard. And those, so those restraints are missing. Scaled up to uh, you know, to Twitter, where there where the community is in the thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions, uh, there is no reputation regulation um, or, or or very little. These problems are, uh, have come roaring in our fa- uh, roaring back, and mm. we haven't figured out what the equivalent is to ter- make the disagreements more civil. Yeah, so we definitely have not. Um, no, we need uh, we, yeah. we need the asbestos cork award. Well, you know the thing is that uh, we have similar we have sort of versions of that, right? Like the you know being blocked on Twitter by some prominent person, but then we have we have people taking it as badges of honor, right? We have you know well people will screenshot the fact that they're blocked and then yes, tweet about so, yes. it and go aha you know well you know finally I've annoyed this person to the point where they blocked me or you know they can't take criticism or whatever. There's a way to spin it where it becomes a badge of honor for your tribe. It's all about the signaling. Oh, yeah. No, and that's, that's happened to me. I have a, uh, uh, an associate that, that monitors my Twitter feed and will block people who, who uh, libel me with obscene uh, accusations. Uh, and that, became, that itself became uh, uh, a uh, yeah. uh, brouhaha a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah, but, it can uh, get crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it can get crazy. But it, it's funny because you brought up the Wikipedia thing. And I can, I can imagine what those, you know, what those intense um, back channel arguments are like, and they're probably nothing like what Twitter is like for a few fundamental reasons, right? Uh, yeah, they can, they can get heated. And I, I'm not uh-huh. a Wikipedia uh, editor or, or, or writer, uh-huh. uh, but, but I read about the, uh, the boiler room of, of uh, Wikipedia. They, <laughs> they can get heated. Uh, and people, editors are, uh, are, are, expelled uh mm. in some very controversial areas that have been you know there, there's some bad blood but still considering wow. the millions of wikipedia entries <laughs> is just remarkable right. on the whole how how good it is yeah and it seems to me what i was going to was going to point to was that wikipedia is a very specific platform with a very specific purpose and the people who are invested enough in it to become editors and contributors have that purpose in mind, right? They, they must be interested in creating and curating these articles and making sure they're informative. So that, that already kind of selects out a certain group of people. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, you know, even if the arguments become very intense and, and, and even horrible, they're still kind of under the umbrella of that shared purpose, right? But I think we don't necessarily have a shared purpose for social media. People come to it with different ideas of what they're going to get out of it. You know. Oh, absolutely. I think you really put your finger on it, that the successful yeah. uh, forums are ones that where there is people 
uh, accept that the overall goal is to, to get at reality, to get at the truth. Right. Now, of course, you know, the problem being that everyone thinks they know the truth, namely uh, <laughs> their own opinion. But yeah. that meta realization, yeah, I think I'm always right, but, you know, so does everyone else. And what are we going to do about it? That's uh, that. And when, when you have communities, you know, such as responsible journalism, such as uh, science and academia, when, when it works well, uh, certainly under threat, uh, that, that's when you can get accumulation of knowledge. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I wonder if, if everyone's kind of framework going into social media was, you know, we're, this, is, this is this wonderful opportunity to communicate with people I may never have met otherwise in my entire life, well, how different it would be. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's right. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem is, is that unlike the dis- electronic discussion groups of the 1980s, uh, even if we had a community of several hundred, that's different from a community of several hundred thousand or several you know, tens of millions. Right. And so the constraints of uh, concern for professional reputation and at least the possibility of either face to face or other co- uh, contact doesn't exist. And there, people tend to be uh, tend to be much more uh, unrestrained. They yeah. they don't have to worry about the other guy getting their grant proposal to review. Right. And that, but that leads me again to you know the question of what can we do? How do, how can we encourage people to to have better strategies or better frameworks in mind so that these platforms and these interactions can be more productive? Yeah, good question. I wish I had the answer. I mean, it's some mm. uh, a few things that would least. There may be like ingredients or little nudges in the right direction, but certainly a greater awareness of the fact of human bias, the fact that we are all fallible, that we all think we're infallible and we can't all be right. Yeah. The, uh, some of the values of the so-called rationality community, epistemic humility, of uh, awareness of biases, of um, such as the availability bias, the fact that we are... Uh, we overestimate the prevalence of things that are available in memory, salient anecdotes, um, the thinking in stereotypes, the desire for social prestige, uh, temptation to uh, attack a straw man versus rather than a steel man, moving the goalposts, all of the uh, informal fallacies of reasoning that uh, should become more common knowledge. We're all we're all vulnerable to them. Mm. You know, let, let's try to have, let's not, not try not to waste our time just um, each of us succumbing to our biases, but figuring out how we could overcome them. And, and it's not yeah. part of our conventional wisdom. Uh, at least it's not commonly taught in uh, elementary or secondary or even college education. It's not part of the culture of op-eds or book reviews. Mm. Uh, so one part of what, I, I'm not going to say this is going to solve the problem, but at least one necessary condition is that an awareness of cognitive fallacies and biases and the rules that are designed to overcome them should be more a bigger part of our conventional wisdom. Yeah, there could be changes to the algorithms, and and uh, you know, people like um, Jonathan Haidt and Jonathan Rausch and others have discussed that maybe that it's the possibility of snowball effects of positive feedback loops in which things are just so easy to retweet that uh, you can get easily get a mob psychology where you something is rising and so you tweet that and that makes it rise even farther. 
maybe there should be a little bit of friction, a little bit of damping, so that those dynamics where, for arbitrary reasons, uh, some something gets traction and then it explodes, uh, should be inhibited. Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen there have been a couple of things where you know, uh, Twitter will ask you like, you know, are you sure you want to retweet this without having read the article? You, you know, there's that. I mean, that you hadn't clicked. Yeah. yeah, there's there's that. I mean, that's a uh, you know, it could be one one solution. One at least proposal is that you can't automatically retweet uh, beyond a certain number of of retweets. You have to actually copy and paste mm-hmm. the content instead of just clicking a button, and that would introduce a little bit of friction into the system. Yeah, interesting. I wonder if it, that just becomes a kind of co-evolution thing, where you know, the harder the shell gets, the sharper the teeth get. Right. It just keeps going forever. It, it could be. Or, but not necessarily, because it could also be like a, a nudge where the default mm-hmm. is that people are lazy. They won't, they won't turn the page and, 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 and read the, the print on the back and, and tick off a box. So that if you make things, if you align the lazy thing with the good thing, you get a lot of goodness. That's the idea behind Richard Thaler and yeah. Cass Sunstein's nudge. So for example, if you yeah. have to tick a box to donate an organ, if you're uh, killed in an accident, not that many people do it. If you have to tick a box to opt out, then even if people, if people who had an objection to their organs being harvested could always opt out, so it's not authoritarian. But as, mm. if, you, if you just change the default, what involves you know, three seconds of effort, you get a huge change in the rates yeah. of, of uh, for compliance. And so it, it, that does open up the possibility that some changes to the uh, architecture of social media may not be nullified by countermeasures, but just might work with human laziness. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a rule of project management that if you want someone to, someone to do something, make it as easy as possible for them to <laughs> exactly. do it. Right. So, I so, guess, so yeah, sure. It just, right. It makes perfect sense. I wanted to ask you actually, because one ditch that I see us falling into a lot and, and I did, I did um, poke John McWhorter about this as well. So, so, you know, as a psycholinguist, as someone who, who has studied this as well. I'm curious about how you feel about the euphemism treadmill and can we ever actually get off of it? I think, I think you're the person that I learned about that concept from and it really clicked in my head. And I see so much of our trouble being misfires and friendly fire as a result of labeling a person or a group of people with this kind of umbrella term that may or may not suit them or fit them properly. And that just causes so much unnecessary miscommunication. So woke is one uh, that, you know, it's going around. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious if you think we can ever escape that sort of thing. It seems so ingrained in us to want to do that. Well, yes, it's, uh, um, and you know, the euphemism treadmill, which I, I may have coined, uh, it's, it's hard to I wasn't sure. I, yeah, I, I wasn't I, sure if it was. I mean, I didn't, I didn't get it from anyone else, but it doesn't mean that someone didn't pick it up before me, which is, ah, okay. you know, if you, when, when you pursue etymologies, you often find that it, no matter what it is, it's always older than you think. That's uh, <laughs> kind of the first, first rule of etymology. Anyway, I may have yeah. coined it, but it refers oh, to okay. the, uh, the uh, I, I wrote, this is way back in 1994 when I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, around the time that um, African-American was replacing black as the preferred term. And the, the reason that it was salient for me is I'm old enough to have remembered when black replaced Negro. And Negro now sounds you know, not only archaic, almost you know, maybe it's even, it's even racist. Who knows? Although, of right, course, right. for many decades, it was the, the, the acceptable term. That's what 
James Baldwin and Martin Luther King used, and we had the United Negro College Fund. Uh, I remember in college having a professor, a history professor, kept referring to Negroes. And it, it struck me as vaguely racist, even though he, yeah. he wasn't. But he was just older than me, and, and, and uh, the, the, he had not yet assimilated the change then. But then there was a second change you know, to African-American. It hasn't replaced Black, and Black doesn't sound, I don't, don't think sounds racist to anyone. But it often happens that a term that's brought in to somehow escape some of the negative connotations of a concept will then soak up those connotations in turn and need to be replaced in its turn. And this is something that, that, that linguists have long recognized. So we have changes from, say, crippled to handicapped to disabled, right. uh, oriental to Asian, I, uh, you know, retarded, which now has, uh, when you think about it, 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 it was uh, it literally just means slowed down. It was mm-hmm. introduced as the most uh, non-derogatory way of referring to people with, say, Down syndrome and other forms of, uh, of, of cognitive impairment as, as possible, compared to its predecessors like idiot, imbecile, and moron, which originally were technical terms. Right. Uh, but then yeah. they, they became so insulting that there had to be a, uh, a replacement. Uh, but then each one of those in turn became tainted. And now apparently retarded is so, itself has become so taboo that it's referred to as the R word. Right. Uh, that's another example of a euphemism <laughs> treadmill. So part yeah. of it is that unless the, we, we shouldn't, even though clearly we want sensitive ways of referring to people that don't um, saddle them with some negative connotation, one can see the rationale for it. But we also shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that by changing the language, we can change the uh, attitudes. And often it's when the attitudes change that the treadmill stops. Mm. So Oriental became Asian, but then Asian is pretty much stuck for 30 or 40 years. And probably it's because the, um, you know, despite, I think, exaggerated rumors that there's been a, a huge rise in anti-Asian racism, it's still a, 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 an ethnic group that is uh, less susceptible to, to racism than, uh, than, than others. Mm. Uh, and so there, there hasn't been a need to find some, uh, you know, to, to call it the, you know, the A word or to find some replacement for that. <laughs> well, I think, that, well, the R word, quote unquote, is something that I, I grew up with in, that, in the sense that it was used as, uh, you know, a derogatory term. And you know, there's, there are other words that are similar that in my upbringing, just in the time where I happened to be growing up, you know, it's just something you would say like, oh, mm-hmm. that's retarded or like, right. Yeah. retarded, Right. Um, now, careful, but, you get you, canceled from this video. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there, the, the interesting thing about that though, is that even, even as a younger person and, um, you know, knowing people who had, uh, developmental disabilities, mental disabilities, who would be called clinically speaking, retarded, mentally retarded, those two, the the words kind of diverged in meaning depending on context. So when I would say like, oh my God, that movie was, that movie was totally retarded, you know, or, or whatever. And sometimes that would actually not be a negative thing. It would be like, oh my God, it was so crazy that I loved it. Right. So there, if there's context within context, right. Like calling something sick or bad, it could be be good. Right. No, that, that, I know that's right. Clearly, you, and co- of course, context makes all the difference, exactly as you put it. That's, again, one of the first <laughs> yeah. laws of linguistics is that most words have multiple meanings. They are eff- generally effortly disambiguated in context. That's just the way mm. human language understanding works. We 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why it's been so hard to, to stimulate language in artificial intelligence systems is that you and I apply the totality of our social and psychological knowledge in getting at the intent of the speaker, something that AI systems uh, as yet can't do. Uh, and, but it's also something that is easily forgotten in the language policing that convicts people of mentioning words that are uh, taboo right. out of the context of why were they mentioning it. The editor of the New York Times who was fired for having a discussion with students about the N-word, in which he actually right. mentioned it. And I mean, it was totally idiotic that he was not only fired, uh, but then subsequently kind of tainted as a racist in, in articles that said he left his job because he used the uh, racial slur. Well, he actually didn't use it. To introduce the technical term, he mentioned it. Right, that is, right. acting as a linguist, he was having a discussion about that word. Right. Uh, the fact that our culture, including elite institutions like the New York Times, including elite institutions like universities who have fired professors mm-hmm. for, for, for mentioning it in class, that is, uh, uh, I'm not going to use the R word, but that is making our culture stupid uh, in the sense that a... <laughs> Basic yeah. distinction that's not that hard to understand. Kids know the difference between uh, talking about a word as a word and actually using it. But right. uh, our uh, drive to demonize and assassinate people has become so strong that that elementary cognitive distinction uh, is mm-hmm. we, people have to pretend that they no longer understand it and treat words as a kind of magic where the mere... Right. The mission of a sound coming out of someone's mouth can have dreadful consequences. The kind of mindset that was behind curses and prayers and word magic that you'd think we'd overcome, that we know enough now that linguistics is a thing, that you can actually think about how language works. You can say, well, the power of language comes from its use in context and the attribution of intent to the speaker. Right. A, a basic point that seems to have been forgotten. Uh, including among our elite institutions, which is worrying. Yeah, yeah. And and actually, an even more egregious example, which I've written about, is is the case of Greg Patton, who was giving a, a, a lecture on on filler words. Or I don't even think he was oh, giving yes. a lecture on it, but it was, he used the, the Chinese filler word nega. Oh, yes. Which sounds like the word we're not supposed to say. And just the, just the mention of a similar sounding combination of syllables was enough for it to flare up, right? Whether, whether it was sincere or not, doesn't matter, I think, because the flare up happened. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that, that is the prototypical example of how universities have become stupid. <laughs> it's just yeah. crazy. But, but I think, you know, the, the point that I made, which I'm curious about your opinion, is that we can't escape the, the kind of attribution of context. It's just, and, you know, when people say that impact matters more than intent, they still care about intent. They're just kind of deciding what the intent was for you, regardless of what you think, you know, what the impact was. Well, yeah, the impact based on the perceived intent, like it doesn't matter. Just you, Steven Pinker, if you utter those syllables because you have the melanin that you have or the, how little melanin you have, because those syllables came out of your lips rather than mine, doesn't matter what you meant. I'm going to assume that you meant the worst possible thing. So it's still, context is still at play there. You know, know, I don't even know. I think it's, I think that might even be crediting too much. It's not as if uh, (laughs) 
you know, as long as I, I forget what the name of the guy at uh, the, the uh, Times, his name, the name is just somebody, Neil, I think. Anyway, uh, Donald McNeil. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So it's not as even as if, I think it's even dumber than that, than what you just said. It's not that, well, deep down, he really was racist because no one's actually made that accusation because you can't because he's not. It's right. rather that uh, it, the, the mere emission of that sound can have dreadful right. consequences. And it's right. actually telling people what the impact is. And in, in, in fact, creating the very reality that it ought to be combating, namely that a sound can make, make can do harm, can make you wither and crumble and lose your confidence, mm-hmm. uh, even if it's being part of an intellectual discussion that is intended to uh, actually to, to lessen the power and impact uh, of these right. slurs. Anyway, you know, they're just words. You're really not going to die. Uh, mm-hmm. Racism as an attitude is despicable, but we're not so stupid that we can't discuss racism as a phenomenon. And one of the right. ways of disarming racists of one of their weapons is to say, even if they use that word, it's just a word. It's not like right. it's not a bullet. It's not a discriminatory policy. Let's uh, understand what's going on. And uh, instead of telling people you're going to be hurt, you're going to be, you're going to crumble, you're going to wither, you're going to have no response. You, uh, mm-hmm. if, this, if anyone even mentions this word in a discussion, we should be fortifying people and equipping people with the intellectual tools to understand what's going on, such as right. this is a words, because of quirks of our psychological makeup can have an effect on our emotional responses. Yeah, your brain mm-hmm. uh, has a response when a certain sound comes in. But let's step back and figure out why, and, and that way it'll we can control these responses and and not get hurt yeah. into uh, trivial discussions. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, you know, there's 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 the issue of charity, which is what we've been talking about. Where you know what the person intended should matter, but then there's also the the issue of practicality that you're bringing up right now, which is even if uh, a particular word or image uh, is is traumatic for me because of my experience or because of my, you know, perspective and framework that I'm operating under. Um, you know, if, if, for example, you know, I I had a family member who died in a factory accident, right? If, if I'm watching a movie and there's a factory accident, I may get triggered by that, right? I may, I may feel certain feelings. I may get really upset. It may remind me of things I wish I didn't have to think about. And I may get, may get terribly upset. To me, I think that's perfectly fine and understandable, even though I may I may caution people that, you know, it might not be healthy to kind of just leave that that way. But I think then what happens next is the tricky part. What happens next is if I decide to get angry at the director of that film because they decided to to write a scene where this happens, you know, like, didn't you know that I would get upset about this? How could you do this? Right. It's, it's, it's a strange, impractical way of kind of outsourcing your own equanimity to others, which becomes just practically impossible. Absolutely. Also, it makes us less equipped to understand history if we are, uh, oh, yeah. if out of emotional sensitivity, we can't confront some of the uglier things that, that happened in the world and that happened in the past. You know, images from, from the Holocaust, from Hiroshima, right. from uh, various uh, from atrocities and, and uh, uh, genocides, they are upsetting. They should be upsetting. And of, of lynchings and of uh, racist violence and pogroms and uh, ethnic riots. On the other hand, we're really better off if we know that they happened and if we know how bad they were. Uh, we don't have to rub our noses in, uh, in it 
um, indefinitely, but we should not be shielded from it out of a concern that we'll just feel you know, so bad that it's better that we aren't ignorant of them. We're not better off ignorant of them. We're better off cognizant of them. All the yeah. better to prevent them from happening in the future. And I think we're better off finding ways to personally overcome them, right? And in terms of you know, being able to, to detach to a certain extent so that we can deal with these things. Because dealing with them yeah. often means just seeing the stuff and, and hearing the stuff, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is part of what being a grown-up is. We shield kids right. from upsetting images, but we as adults should be uh, aware of them. And indeed, there is a the whole kind of trauma therapy uh, industry that tries to uh, cultivate a um, you know, vulnerability, sensitivity to uh, adverse events can, as uh, my, my colleague Rich McNally uh, at Harvard put it, can be yatrogenic, the technical term for doctor-induced uh, illness. Mm. We can make things worse if we keep telling people, oh, you're going to be permanently damaged and injured by something that happened to you. A mindset that I, this did happen to me, I can deal with it. It can be more constructive in getting people to, to deal with it and lead uh, happy, productive lives. Yeah. And famously, you know, the, the, the kind of backfire of trigger warnings, right? Where, exactly. You know, which to me seemed fairly obvious that, uh, you know, <laughs> I think, it, like, you know, generalizing the trigger warning, like say, hey, by the way, trigger warning, that's going to trigger anybody who has a trigger. You know, exactly. of it, well, in fact, you know, Rich and his his student uh, at, at Harvard, uh, Peyton Jones, I was on his dissertation committee. I've shown mm-hmm. that trigger warnings are can, can be harmful. That is, they do they can make people react uh, more negatively to events than if there were no trigger warnings. Right, right. It's, because it's they tell people you're going to be hurt, you're going to be damaged. Oh, gee, right. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> right, and it's it's kind of you know that that. It's a it's a tenet of horror films, right? Where the less you the less you are shown, the less of the monster you see, the scarier the movie is. It's true. Yes, that's right. The, the apprehension builds up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So it seems to me like, hey, there's there's a monster back here. There's a monster back here. Seems to me to be doing even more of the the work of getting people upset and agitated. When, yeah, you know, although although I guess I can see parental parental discretion, you know. Please well, be yeah, for children. some graphic images. Yeah. Well, yeah, for, for children. But right. we're not talking about children. We're talking about adults <laughs> or in the case of university students, part of the training that turns you into an adult. Yeah, right. Yeah, it seems to me that the trigger warning for, for a university should be you are about to enter a place where ideas are going to get thrown around and you're just going to hear stuff you're not going to like. And that's part of why you're here. I wonder if we should just put that put that above the door. <laughs> uh, indeed, no. That that really, actually that should be part of our uh, understanding of what being an educated adult consists of. Yeah. So I actually wanted to to ask you about rationality. You know, your most recent book, and of course, you get tons of pushback about that. Some people say, "Well, what a, what an obvious book," <laughs> and other people say, "You know, um, well, people say a bunch of things." But I'm actually curious. Uh, I had had someone suggest this question when um, when I announced that I would be talking to you. But uh, the question is, you know, why why focus on reason when most of our behavior is initiated due to instincts? Um, as in, you know, they're not really conscious or effortful or chosen. They are kind of, you know, we're 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 kind of just along for the ride in, in a in a really important sense. We're we're kind of just observing our own reactions to things. Well, it's, you know, I think that's there is, there is that uh, undercurrent, but it's not all there is to human behavior. Otherwise, 
Anytime we'd see food, we'd stuff it into our mouth if we were hungry. Every time we'd see an attractive stranger, we'd start to paw them. You know, we'd, yeah. we'd blurt out everything. We, you know, we see, you see a, a, an unattractive or a fat person and you, you know, blurt out. You know, and kids sometimes do that. We kind of find it either mm-hmm. embarrassing or endearing. Yeah. Um, but, but adults don't. We do have a faculty of self-control. We do have a faculty of reason. It's what education, both uh, formal in, in schools and informal in discourse, is designed to draw out and amplify. It's what our institutions are designed to uh, implement on a collective scale. So we have the, the capacity, and the question is, what does it consist of? How does it work? How can we make it more effective? How do we have, mm. uh, uh, avoid getting sucked into these, these biases, uh, given, which, which undoubtedly exist? And a lot of the book rationality consists of explaining some of the well-documented human fallacies and biases. Uh, that's something that, of course, others have, have done, like famously Daniel Kahneman and his famous work with Amos Tversky on human biases and judgment and decision-making, and Richard Thaler and Dan Ariely and, and others. Uh, mm-hmm. But in addition, I, uh, in, in rationality, I also had a kind of a, almost tutorials of what I think are the main tools of reasoning that are the opposite of fallacies. They're the benchmark by which we decide that something is a fallacy, namely reasoning mm-hmm. that doesn't conform to these normative models, as they're often called, logic and probability. And uh, Bayesian reasoning, namely calibrating uh, degree of belief according to the strength of evidence, statistical decision theory, uh, rational choice theory, correlation and causation. These are, I have six cognitive tools that I think every educated person should master. And it's when we depart from these tools that we say that people are, are biased or committing uh, fallacies. Right. Um, and so I wanted to uh, get those out there. Uh, a lot of psychology, cognitive psychologists kind of having first documented the ways in which we're irrational. Uh, I've often heard just in kind of common discussion, gee, you know, everyone should really know, you know, what, what, how Bayes' rule works. Sounds fancier than it is. It's really not that complicated. Um, but it just, uh, you know, we use it as our uh, yardstick against which we compare human irrationality, but people shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shouldn't be our secret. And so I wanted to, to make that known. And of course, I couldn't avoid the question of uh, why does there seem to be so much flagrant irrationality around us? What's the deal with mm-hmm. the fake news, and the medical quackery, and conspiracy theories, the, the paranormal woo-woo? Uh, and so I had a chapter on that, knowing that that was the chapter that everyone would go to first. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is that Yes, we have instincts and sort of um, those other behaviors that are that are triggered by them, and that we're kind of just along for the ride. But but reasoning is another one of those is another one of those tools in our toolkit that just comes prepackaged. And that yes, we, exactly. And that, that of course ties back to our earlier conversation on how progress is possible if there's such a thing as human nature, and it's because right. human nature does include rational faculties that are by default we apply them pretty narrowly to our physical surroundings, to, you know, keeping food in the fridge and gas in the car, and the kids mm-hmm. clothed and fed. Um, and the challenge is how do we extend that mindset uh, to more politically and ideologically charged arenas where yeah. we tend not to apply rationality, but rather tribalism and passion and demonization. Right. So how do we do that? What do you think? 
Well, again, this sort of ties back to some of the themes that we, you and I have been talking about. What are the, yeah. how do we implement uh, kind of social norms and rules that marginalize our biases and that bring out our, our more rational angels? Uh, mm-hmm. And they include things like free speech, open debate, uh, empirical testing, uh, norms of criticizing the uh, argument, not the person of criticizing an argument in its strong form, not its straw form, those, that, that, that set right. of norms and, and principles that implement them, such as the Wikipedia community's overarching commitment to uh, objectivity, viewpoint neutrality, sourcing, that whole set of values and norms. Yeah. I'm reminded now of uh, you know, one thing that I do, just because I'm also kind of a dick, <laughs> especially when I was younger, um, I remember around 2012 uh, when, you know, the the whole end of the world thing was happening again. You know, that was another year where the whole thing was supposed to go down. Um, and I, of course, was skeptical of this. And there were people who were fairly convinced and were getting themselves ready. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't go through with it because I felt like it was too mean. But I had the idea of just kind of walking around with a sign saying like, hey, if you're if you think you're going to be raptured or. If you think it's all over, I'll you know transfer your money into my bank account. You won't need it anyway. And, right. and of course, you know, of course, the idea there being that their rationality will kick in right there and go, "I'm yes. not going to give you my money," right? Like that's right. silly, right? <laughs> well, uh, that's actually profound. I mean, it's, it's a joke, but it's actually profound in, in a couple of ways. One of them is that you're absolutely right that what people believe, uh, they. When it comes to these cosmic, you know, eschatological or, or metaphysical mm-hmm. realms, people don't often have the courage of their convictions. Belief is not the same as belief as is there beer in the fridge or not, where you know, it's just empirical reality and your, your, your ideology has nothing to do with it. It's either true right. or false and you can check. Yeah. Here, uh, you're right that people espousing beliefs, a lot of religious beliefs, a lot of political beliefs, a lot of conspiracy theories. They're just sharing an attitude, uh, and they—if mm. you ask them to put their money where their their their, their beliefs are, where their amounts are—they would probably desist. Uh, at least you know, some the, of them. At least some of them. No, it's true. There, there are. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are. There were the, the people who literally drank the Kool Aid at Jonestown. Yeah, they were yeah. the Heaven's Gate people who killed themselves, thinking that their souls would be whisked to a UFO behind the Hale-Bopp comet. There are. You know, there was the guy who burst into the pizzeria and the comet ping pong pizzeria with his gun blasting to save yeah, the children yeah. who were the victims of the, you know, the Hillary Clinton's pedophile ring. But mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot more people who I think uh, like your, 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 your end of the world preppers uh, when they believe, say they believe something it's part of their identity, but they aren't willing to, to act on it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting. You brought up the, these end of the world cults because our, you could say historically that our entire awareness of cognitive biases and fallacies originated from one of, a study of one of those cults way back in 1950, when two famous social psychologists, Leon Festinger and Stanley Schachter, infiltrated one of these cults. Mm. And their kind of mischievous plan was to see what would happen when the date rolled around and the world didn't end. How, yeah. would, they, how would they respond to it? And they found some of them did fall away. They were kind of crushed. Oh, damn. Uh, the world didn't end after all. But some of them wow. doubled down 
and they came up with rationales. Uh, uh, they rationalized the failure of the prediction by saying, oh, we did a little mathematical error or there was uh, some condition that failed to hold, so mm-hmm. it's going to be postponed. That's what led to the famous theory of cognitive dissonance, which every intro psych student is exposed to. Yep. And it's one of the first, really one of the first academic exposés of a widespread cognitive bias, in this case, rationalization. And indeed, you kind of recapitulated it in your own <laughs> uh, little mini yeah. experiment, uh, seeing, holding people's feet to the fire with these apocalyptic releases to see what happens when mm. they don't come true. Yeah. Right. Suddenly doubt starts to creep in whether you, you want it to or not. And you're like, ah, or, or you, you, you spin, you, you hold a sacred belief and you spin the rest of your belief system mm-hmm. to keep, to protect it, which was the whole right. theory of cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Right. And then the common, the common thing for me, the most common one that I've observed is the kind of phasing into metaphor. Oh, we didn't yes. literally mean it. It was a spiritual end. And there, there, you, go. <laughs> there you go. That's another one of the mechanisms. Um, right. So Stephen, before we let you go and ask the last question that we ask every guest, I wanted to ask you uh, another thing that someone suggested, which is, you know, what can parents specifically do or not do to help improve their, their children's chances of kind of being more rational people, of operating in the way that we've been discussing, giving them those tools kind of early on? You know, what I always say is that we don't get an instruction manual for our brains. And it'd be right. really great if we did. You know, yeah. introspection is, is not, uh, doesn't come pre-programmed. Um, not all of us are, are enjoy thinking about thinking as much as you know you and I might. But uh, what what can parents do? Yeah, you know, it's a you know I, I think it is to weave into conversation. You know, the the, the various traps and vulnerabilities to, to to errors and biases and fallacies. If someone you know if there's a story on the news and and, and the you know someone says, well, it's uh, boy things are, are really. Uh, getting worse, you can say, well, gee, that's just one example. The country has millions of people. How is that mm. really uh, a trend or is it just one viral image? Uh, you know, they're just uh, weaving into just conventional wisdom of under, making sense of world events and of everyday events. If, if someone misinterprets correlation as causation, have that be a thing. Correlation doesn't Prove causation mm-hmm. with the, if necessary, with the use of jokes and, and humor, like my uh, grandfather's joke, which I think he had to have been born in Poland in 1900 to appreciate of the man who <laughs> gorged himself on, on bean stew and tea and then lay in pain, moaning that the tea made him sick. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not the funniest joke, but he thought it was uproarious. Uh-huh. And it just, it's, it's a way of inserting into our background understanding of the world that we're susceptible to confusing correlation with causation. Um, and I mean, that's just one out of many examples, but it should be part of our collective uh, awareness. Yeah. So basically, you know, modeling it and, and voicing, voicing it when, when the opportunity arises, I guess. And, and, and sometimes naming it as in the case of, you know, the, the, the mantra correlation doesn't apply causation. It's a lot of right. syllables, but, uh, but it's become, yeah. fortunately, it's become enough of a cliche that, uh, at least if it, it can pop into mind uh, opportune right. moments. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not sure what you're working on now, but if I may pitch to you, you know, Rational Baby, <laughs> you know, kind of a spinoff well, book. Those, those I, things I tend to be doing, is, yeah, they tend to do pretty well, those, those kind of spinoff books. You, you're right. Uh, it's a niche. <laughs> uh, probably I won't fill, but, but it's there for someone else to, 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 to fill. I'm, okay. 
All right. Yeah. So enlightenment baby and rational baby and blank slate. <laughs> blank slate. Yes. Yeah. Let's let's get those printed, guys. Indeed. Um, <laughs> so Stephen, you've been you've been awesome. It's been such a great conversation. I wanted to make sure to ask you the last question we ask all our guests. Uh, as you know, as an as a fair advisor, as you know, our focus at Fair is is to provide what we call a pro human approach to the issues of the day, of our discourse of race and intolerance, and all of the things that we've been talking about. Um, and so the question for you is, what does pro human mean to you, and how can people in their everyday lives adopt a more pro human approach to all of these issues? Well, um, part of the answer is to, to realize that problems are hard, that they're not uh, the fault of e evil people, but tragedies that face all of us, and that the solution to problems is not to uh, necessarily to, to uh, attack and demonize and, and punish other people, but rather to solve problems. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, also that the ultimate moral value for everything is uh, the well-being of, of, of humans. Uh, and and other sentient creatures, but that uh, the reason that we have concepts like good and bad and, and, and evil and virtue is that people can suffer, people can flourish, and that's really what 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 it's all about. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Stephen Pinker, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. It was such an honor to talk to you. Uh, I hope we'll do it again. Pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune in to Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again, and see you next time.